Now, let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and tonight I'd like to cover primarily verse 10, but um, I want to swing back just a little bit and make sure that we understand what's going on in the entirety of chapter 2. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are elect, or perhaps the word chosen could be used, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. To remind you of the overall situation in Ephesus where Timothy is ministering and the place where he is, where he is when he receives this letter. He's in a difficult situation there, dealing with the onslaught of false teachers and the attack of those who would undo what Paul had done, laboring under the ministry and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in that particular place. So Paul writes this letter to encourage Timothy to fulfill his responsibility to the church. But the point is, Timothy is in a difficult situation. Now let me just pause here because this is going to be one of my primary uh, assertions tonight. Difficult situation, the term difficult situation is relative. True. And Paul is in a much more difficult situation, I think most of us would agree, than Timothy is right now. Nevertheless, Timothy still has difficulties. So Paul, who's in a more difficult situation, is encouraging Timothy, who's in a less difficult situation, but it's still troubling nonetheless. One of the worst mistakes you can make as a Christian in interpersonal interactions with other believers is to minimize their difficulties. Because what, what, what troubles me may not trouble you. And if I express something that's troubling me to you, and you sit down with me and you say, hey, listen, you need to get a real problem. You don't know what a problem is. Let me tell you what's happening to me. The friendship is probably not going to go real far past that. You never minimize someone else's problems. Because all of us have areas of strength, and all of us have areas of weakness. We need to sympathize. Now, we, we don't need to coddle. We don't need to encourage continued weaknesses. That's not my point. But you never want to minimize the problems of another. If it's bothering them, it's bothering them. And you work with what is troubling them. So you have, some find it strange that Paul would be encouraging Timothy, rather than saying, hey, Timothy, you got no real problems. You want to know what a real problem is? Come visit me in Rome for a little while. You're going to see what real difficulty is. But that's not what he does. He encourages this young uh, champion in the faith. Actually, he's been admonishing him throughout chapter 1 with a series of imperatives. In verse 6 he says, And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In verse 8 he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But here's the imperative. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. I have read some church growth books just to kind of see what they're saying. I've never seen that as one of the major points of a church growth book that you need to put on your billboard outside. Come suffer with us for Christ. But this is what Paul tells Timothy. Look at verse 13, another imperative. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 14, another imperative. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So these are commands. That's what an imperative is. These are commands. And Paul has already given these to Timothy. But there's more. 
as Paul had passed the torch of ministry on to Timothy, so now Timothy should do so to other men who gave evidence that they too would be faithful. These should instruct others who would then follow them. Christianity is not going to die with the Apostle Paul. When, Paul, when the Apostle Paul is taken outside the city of Rome and beheaded, Christianity doesn't die. In fact, it moves forward. It's been my observation, actually, that the church moves forward faster at a more rapid rate during times of persecution, not during times of prosperity. It moves faster and progresses further during times of persecution. And this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit has seen fit to utilize faithful servants to mentor those who are the next generation of ministers. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one doing the mentoring, but as is the custom of God, faithful individuals are used in the process. God doesn't have to do it this way. He graciously allows participation in the process. Until the day that our Lord returns for his church, there will always always be a next generation of pastor teachers and church leaders. Did you hear me? Until the day that the Lord comes for his church, there will always be a next generation of church leadership and pastors and teachers. So we should never fret when one generation begins to pass away. God will always bring up a next generation. And when we look at these icons of the faith that either go to be with the Lord or about to go that are about to go with the Lord sometimes we can we can tremble who's going to replace Dwight Pentecost I don't know who it is but the Lord will raise up someone to do that and and his shoes although he's a a slight man his shoes are going to be big to fill but it's the Lord's ministry who's going to replace Lewis Sperry Chafer he was replaced by a man by the name of John Wolvert, who did an awfully good job for a long time. The Lord will always raise up a next generation. We need not fear that our spiritual lives are going to come to an end, or that the, the church is going to come to an end, either the church with a capital C or your church with a little c. God will always raise up another generation. At least he will until he comes for his church. That doesn't mean that people are going to listen to the next generation. That's your choice. But God is going to raise them up. So Timothy is to entrust the gospel to others and share in suffering. So now Paul compares Timothy to a good soldier. And then in the next few verses, to an athlete and to a farmer. All who have to participate within the certain boundaries of their particular profession in order to be blessed. So he uses these three illustrations. And in all three illustrations, Paul stresses there's no place for laziness. There's no place for laziness in the military. There's no place for laziness as an athlete. Sometimes people think, uh, folks like Michael Jordan, so gifted that Michael Jordan didn't have to practice. Michael Jordan just went out there and played. All contraire. From what I've read, Michael Jordan practiced harder than anybody else on the court. He was there first and he left last. Yes, he had God-given ability, but he used it. And he developed it. So there's no laziness in a superstar in athletics. There's no laziness in the military. There shouldn't be. There's certainly no laziness in being a farmer. If there is, you're not going to eat. The cows don't get milked. The seed doesn't get planted. 
nothing's going to grow. So there is no place for laziness in performing the work of God. Then in verse 8, Paul calls upon Timothy to remember the resurrected Christ. And I want to remind you, uh, no pun intended there with the word remember and remind, but, but I want to remind you that in both the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, when, when the term remember is used, it's not just a, a, a recalling to mind. Do you remember when that second criminal on the cross, it's, it's not really fair to call him a thief so much because he was an evildoer. He was a bad guy. But when that second criminal on the cross is having his conversation with our Lord, remember what he says? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, he's not asking Jesus just to have some fond memory of the time they spent together on Golgotha, <laughs> is he? No, he's asking him for something specific. He's asking him for entry into the kingdom, you see? When Jesus tells us in the upper room, not only, not only uh, actually he tells us through the disciples, to remember me in this way, keep on doing this. When we, when we have the remembrance that we call the Lord's table or the Eucharist, the communion service, it's not just that we sit back and let our minds wander, but it's an active remembrance. We have two elements. That's what makes it active. We have a bread and the cup, and we actively take and, and eat that bread realizing that it symbolizes something. We drink the cup understanding that it symbolizes something. So this, this remembrance here is not just a, a fond memory, of, since Timothy didn't know our Lord in a, in a personal way. He didn't come to salvation until after our Lord was crucified. It's not, re- recall the trip that we took up to Bethany or, or over to Jericho. No, that's not what it is. There's an active remembrance that is being requested here, actually commanded here, because this is a present imperative. It's a, a present command, a command that, is, that it could be understood, and I think probably should be understood, as an ongoing command. This is not something that should just be done one time. This is a constant remembrance of Jesus Christ. We all have to be told to do this, and we have to be told to do it in an active way. Now, he's already told them how to do it, retain the standard of sound words and so forth. Rekindle afresh the gift. So there are active aspects to this remembrance. One of the things that struck me so much about this, one of the first letters that I got from Debbie, most of you got it too, over in, over in Pakistan, was their original welcome into that church. Did you read it? They, they put out rose petals for them to walk. They didn't have a red carpet, but they put out a carpet of rose petals. They were so grateful that someone came to teach them the Word of God, that they went to the trouble of putting out those pedals for them to walk on. It, it wasn't anything for them personally. It wasn't placing them on a pedestal, but placing the Word of God on a pedestal. And I thought about that for the, for the last well, day and a half or so since I got that from Norma, that, that report. And then I thought, I wonder what would happen if Moses stayed there and others stayed there for a year two years, three years, and they had teaching all the time. I kind of think maybe after a few visits, the rose petals would get put away. Uh, the attendance would probably go down a little bit. You know, somebody would have something else to do that day. They needed to milk the cow or sweep the front porch or something. And so these commands would, would probably be appropriate for them as well. Remember. 
Our Lord knows. He knew full well that our hearts were prone to wander, as the hymn writer said. And so, since we are prone to wander, oh, we don't wander when we haven't had something for a long time. If we've lost our health and then regain it, for the first couple of weeks that we've regained it, we are very happy to have it. But then after we've had it for a while, it is so typical of the human race to take it for granted. That's why remembrance is an active activity. And it's commanded not only for Timothy, but for you and me as well. And when we actively recall to mind Jesus Christ, there's an action that is expected in association with that. When we actively recall to mind the resurrected Christ, our behavior will be different. Our attitudes will be different. Our, our willingness to suffer for Christ will be different. If I remember what he did for me, my willingness to suffer for him is going to shoot way up. But if I have put that in the back of my mind, refusing to recall it, it's not going to happen. So, in verse 8, Paul calls upon Timothy to remember, but to specifically remember the resurrected Christ. Not just a dead prophet, not just a theoretical figure, but a resurrected Christ. We've spoken about this in several classes recently. So let me just say this. I want to remind you that the plain fact, the fact of history is that a man named Jesus lived in the first part of the first century, claimed during his life to be the Son of God, and that faith in him was the only way that one would ever get to the Father. And then he validated that claim by both his words and his works. He predicted that he would be crucified and raised to life three days later, and it happened. And this is the only thing like this that has ever happened in all of human history. Now that's a miracle, isn't it? You know what Muhammad's miracle was? Not healing the sick, not raising the dead, not giving sight to the blind. Muhammad's, the only miracle Muhammad claims for himself is that of writing the Quran, which is not much of an attestation to a miracle for most objective, for most objective folks. But let's say you were walking around Palestine and you said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me. Well, the first thing is, for, for them to crucify him, it means something had to happen that the Romans performed the execution, not the Jews. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to, and I'm going to be raised to life three days later. Then if that happens, that's a person you might want to listen to. And that's exactly what happened. To ignore the resurrected Christ is not scholarship. My daughter's at Texas A&M, and some of the scholarship at Texas, at Texas A&M Think of what it is in other places. But some of the scholarship at Texas A&M ignores the resurrected Christ. I don't call that scholarship. I call that historical illiteracy. Then the sentence that begins in verse 8 is concluded in verse 9. This is some of the material that we, that we covered last week. Paul says, For which I suffer, speaking of the gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. The final phrase, but the word of God is not bound, is really the key to what Paul is expressing here. Certainly he means that the gospel will be handed over to other people to preach. That's part of what he's talking about, but that's not all. I think Paul intends to say that the gospel is not bound even in his own ministry, even while he's in prison. Because it looks very much like he intends to have an opportunity to speak before Nero. 
And I believe he has every intention of giving the gospel to Nero when he speaks to him. He did it every other time. He is before a Roman ruler. Why wouldn't he do it the final time? I'm certain. I'm as certain as anything I can be certain of that's not written down for word for word in the Bible. But I'm certain that Paul gave the gospel to Nero if he, get, if he had an opportunity. And I'm also certain that Nero didn't accept it. For which I suffer hardship. Now look at the word hardship here, and then look at the, look at the first phrase of verse 10. For this reason I endure all things. Here we get back to the idea of suffering as a Christian. Probably the least favorite topic for most folks. It's like, when are we going to get to the blessing part? <laughs> when are we going to get to the year of blessing? Well, it's going to happen. You're going to, there's going to be a place, there's going to be a point in time when there's going to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. The old things have passed away. But do we have to wait for that? I don't think that we do. We have to wait for that for the ultimate fulfillment of blessing, to be sure. But you can be content, and Paul says this in another place, you can be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself. But it doesn't happen naturally. You've got to learn that. That has to be a, it is a learned response to be joyful even in the midst of suffering. It doesn't mean you're laughing like you're sitting in front of the television watching Bill Cosby at his best. That's not what it means. But you can be just like Jesus Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There was a contentment in Jesus even while he was suffering for our sins in the greatest agony anyone's ever endured. So now Paul says, for this reason I endure all things, in verse 10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It's already been revealed that Paul is suffering as a serious criminal, as an evildoer, as a worker of evil, because of his ministry for the gospel. And he's willing to do that because of what's at stake the eternal destiny of the elect. I don't for a minute think that Paul believes that it's all up to him. That would be totally contrary to the rest of his teachings in the Word of God. He knows that the Spirit could and would raise up someone else should he choose to sit it out on the sidelines. But if he should choose to forsake the ministry to which he was called, the ramifications for him in a personal way would be so significant I can't ever see Paul refusing the call. When some folks speak of endurance in the ministry, they may be referring to their computer going down or the air conditioning being set three degrees too high on a Sunday morning or, or perhaps the, the pianist not showing up for the worship service. That's having to endure all things. That's why I said in the beginning, endure, the, the whole thing about suffering difficulties, it's all relative. And if you're right in the middle of that, yes, it can be a big problem if your pianist doesn't show up. and you're, You have to sing a cappella. You have to sing a cappella. <laughs> what a tragedy. It's 74 instead of 71. Oh, man, would you pray for us? Would you pray for us? I want you to see what Paul means when he speaks of enduring all things. Hold your place here. We'll be back. But turn over for a minute to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. While you're turning that, I will... I will just kind of remind you just a bit about this second letter to the Corinthians. This was probably the fourth of the letters that Paul writes to the Corinthians. We have numbers two and four. Numbers one and three are lost. The Corinthian church had given Paul a great amount of grief. 
Uh, we see that in, in the, the, the stern tone of his correction in the first letter that he, what we call 1 Corinthians, the letter that he writes to them. There's problems with, with disunity in the church and fornication in the church and immorality of gross kinds, people suing one another, problems with the misuse of spiritual gift, problems with the misunderstanding of the resurrection. Now, he's got that cleared up, but still problems exist. And one of the things that Paul has to deal with in 2 Corinthians is the fact that these Corinthian believers, who Paul loves so dearly, otherwise he'd have let them go, are questioning now his apostolic authority as well as his character. I want you to get the irony of this. The Corinthians are questioning his character. Do you hear that? The Corinthians are questioning his character. These, these believers who have allowed an immorality into their church of a, such of a nature as it would have embarrassed the Gentiles are questioning Paul's character. Sometimes when that happens, you just need to let it go. Other times, when someone questions it, you have to defend yourself. I can't tell you what time is which. The Holy Spirit has to lead you to do whatever it is that's appropriate for that particular time. But this time, Paul felt that he needed to defend both his apostolic authority and his character. And it's in chapter 11 that he defends his character. Or at least one of the places where he defends his character. It looks like, based upon what we can see from what expositors sometimes call a mirror reading, that the false teachers that had come into Corinth had bragged about the amount of suffering that they had endured. Perhaps they bragged about their education, perhaps they bragged about their nationality and their background, and they were so superior to Paul because they had done this in, in, to a much greater degree than Paul had done. What a mirror reading is, for the, we haven't talked about this in, in some time, but a mirror reading would be Paul giving us an answer, and we've got to go back and figure out what the question was, or what the statement was. For example, if I was to say this, um, I went to the store to buy some bananas. Let's say that, that all you had was that on a piece of paper. I went to the store to buy some bananas. What might the question have been? Why would you go to the store? See, it's not that hard. So when you see Paul answering a question, it's, it's fair to go back. If he answers a question on what should we do about believers marrying non-believers, and you've got to figure somebody must have asked him a question, is it legitimate for believers to be unequally yoked? You see the point? So with that in mind, let's, for con actually the, the list of difficulties begins in verse 24, but just for context, I want you to see, and just so you get the tone of this letter, I want you to go back to verse 16 of chapter 11, and let's just read through. I'll do it with minimal comment, although there I can't help but make a couple. Paul says this, Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, that I also may boast a little. He doesn't like to boast, he doesn't like to brag, but these people have come in and they've been bragging about their accomplishments, and these silly Corinthians have, been, have been just been withering away with every false teacher that's come their way. So he says, listen, just humor me, would you? In verse 17, that which I am speaking, I am not speaking as the Lord would, but as in foolishness. In this confidence of boasting, if you begin to pick up a tone of divine irony, or divinely sanctioned irony, or perhaps, to use a stronger word, sarcasm, I think you're right. Just listen to what he says. Now, he's not doing it to be mean. He's doing it to get their attention because he loves them. Sometimes you have to try a different method. What he's tried before hasn't worked with them. Since many, according to the, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. I assume that's talking about the false teachers. For you, being so wise, bear with the foolish gladly. 
you see, he's really laying this on thick. The Corinthians, the whole Greek culture, prided themselves in wisdom. So Paul just saying, listen, you are so smart. You are so wise. Would you just bear with a foolish old man for just a minute? And let me just tell you a few things. Now, they're smart. They're seeing through this. But he's also getting their attention. Verse 20, for you bear with anyone... If he enslaves you, if he devours you, if he takes advantage of you, if he exalts himself, if he hits you in the face. Again, speaking of these false teachers, you don't mind anybody coming in and abusing you in this way at all. So why don't you bear with me for just a second? To my shame, I must say, we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect, anyone else is bold. I speak in foolishness. I'm just as bold myself. Then he begins his defense of himself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And then he says, I speak as though I'm insane. I more so, in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Now, I want you to listen to this roster that comes up. This is what he's talking about when he says, I've endured all things. Not the computer going down. Not the temperature being set too high, and not the pianist not showing up on time. Okay? This is the list he's talking about. Not that those things happen to us. I don't want to, we're not talking about any piano player not showing up on time. She always comes early. So don't anybody tell Joy that she, 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 she's there before everybody else. So we're not talking about our own pianist. That's an incredible job. Now in verse 24, listen to this. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. The Jews and the Romans both, when they would scourge people, they had, they had it down to such a science that they knew that 40 lashes would oftentimes kill a person. So if they just wanted to punish them, they would give them 40 minus 1. This happens to them five times. Now, I don't know that this is the type of scourging that our Lord went through. There were several different forms of scourging. But still, he received the 39, which means it's pretty tough, and it happened to him five times. Now, if you just wanted to stop right there, that's enough for me. You don't have to go any further. He's already done the beaten times without number. He can't even remember the amount of times he was beaten up. This is what he's talking about with suffering. Suffer with me. I've endured all these things. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Let me remind you, this, this book was probably written 56-ish, something like that. Paul still has another good um, decade to live. This isn't counting all the, the suffering that, he, that takes place. After. This is up until this time what had happened. The book of Acts, by the way, doesn't record all these. Some of them. But it doesn't record all of them. Luke chose not to. Paul probably told him not to under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So just list a few of them. They wouldn't believe you if you told them all the things that happened. Let me tell them later. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. I love this one. Dangers from my countrymen, fellow Jews. Dangers from the Gentiles. So let's just get it all inclusive. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. He, I, don't, I can't figure out a place where he can go where there's not danger, according to that list. In the city and in the country, amongst Jews and amongst Gentiles. These aren't small difficulties. This isn't the air conditioning going out. This isn't having to start the service ten minutes late. These are difficulties. Now, I'm not trying to contradict what I said in the beginning. 
I'm just trying to get us to put things in perspective. When Paul says that he's enduring all things, he's enduring all things. Because I'm sure those things happened to him as well, but I doubt he cared so much. I had been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Now, even it only took verse 27. That's never happened to me. There's never been a time for an extended period of time where I wanted to drink water and couldn't get one. Maybe for a couple hours or two, maybe when you're playing ball or something like that. But if you wanted one, you could quit and go walk and get one. I mean, if you really, if you really were that thirsty. Apart from such external things, there is daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. The pressure of being an apostle. There's enough pressure being a pastor of one church. Can you imagine being apostle of all the churches at the time? At least all the ones he had planted? That's pretty heavy-duty pressure. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Then he mentions a couple other things, but for the sake of time, we need to go back to 2 Timothy. So when Paul says, for this reason I endure all things, I wanted you to just get a taste of what he means by all things. That's what he's talking about. That's what he has endured. For the sake of those who are chosen, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. This word chosen causes blood pressure to rise. It causes friends to be at each other's throats. It ought not. It's the word elect. It's, it could just as easily be translated that. Sometimes expositors see the word elect in a passage, and immediately as one uh, commentary that I worked with today and yesterday did, they, they launched into a defense of extreme Calvinism and more specifically unconditional election, complete with exclamation points, which is not totally appropriate for a commentary anyway. Not, not a real good, serious commentary. And I'm not really sure that that's appropriate here either. That's not what this is talking about. Let me leave you with just a couple of thoughts on the matter as our time is coming to a close. It is undeniable. Please listen carefully. It is undeniable that God elected or chose some in eternity past to bring into glory while leaving others in just condemnation. That is undeniable. To deny it is to deny the clear teaching of the Bible. So you never want to say something so silly as, I don't believe in election. Now what you may very well want to say is, I don't believe in the Calvinistic understanding of election. Or, I don't buy Arminius' view of election. That's different from asserting that you don't believe in election. Please, if you go to this church, don't go out and tell somebody. Don't go tell Dr. Bailey. <laughs> Please. Don't, don't, don't run your mouth to Dr. Bailey on Sunday. He says, well, no, here, we don't believe in election. Okay, well, let's go back and see what grades he made in seminary. No, of course you do. You just may not believe in someone's particular view of election. There are, there are different ways of understanding it. And there have been for 400 plus years since the whole thing really reared its, reared its head. And even before that, if you go back far enough, it's really Augustine, back in the late 300s, early 400s, that really started the discussion rolling. So don't say that you don't believe in it. You may say, I take a different view of how it came to pass or how this, this is to be understood. Do you see the distinction I'm making? 
whatever your view of election, and I've given you mine on several occasions in the near past, the recent past, so I'm not going to repeat that now. There's not time for that. But remember at least these things. Remember that your view must fit all of the biblical data. And I encourage you to consider it. Don't ignore it. It's part of the biblical teaching. We're going to study Ephesians before too long. I haven't decided if it's the very next book that we're going to study or perhaps we'll do it after we study the Gospel of John. That's pretty much the, oh, on Sunday mornings. That's the only decision I really have to make at this point. But it's going to come up, and you're going to see it's there just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's there. You can't get around it. You don't want to get around it. It's a very comforting doctrine. Now, how we understand it, that, that, we can discuss that. But, but don't act like it didn't happen. That's, uh, that's a sure thing. But if you would at least keep these things in mind, and I'd leave you with these and, uh, and look forward to seeing you again in the first week of May. Remember, either here, there, or in the air, as they say. Remember that God desires all men to be saved. At least factor these things into your view. God desires all men to be saved. That the work of Christ on the cross renders all men savable. That salvation is a gift of God. It is a work of God. Entirely a work of God. And that man can do nothing to earn it. You've got to factor all these things in. We cannot do a single thing to earn salvation. That the only responsibility given to mankind in the transaction is to exercise faith and faith alone in Christ alone. And finally, that in his divine self-disclosure... Of the scriptures, God presents himself as all-loving. Don't forget that. Do not ever allow yourself to be taken in by a theological system that denies this truth, either overtly or by redefining love, in such a way as to be meaningless. And this last thing, uh, I will leave you with all my heart. Never buy into a theological system that sends the unborn, infants, and the mentally retarded to hell. That is an abomination and is as foreign to the revelation of the holy, just, and loving Savior and the character of that holy, just, and loving God as anything can possibly be. The God of the Bible does not send the unborn to hell. I wonder sometimes if we're reading the same book as those who would assert such bile. I must say, don't try to read anything into that. I'm not, nobody at this church has ever pretended to assert that. But if you did, I'm going to say you're at the wrong church. Because that is not the God of the Bible. Well, it's 8.30 and it's probably good. Paul endured, over the course of his ministry, all that Satan threw at him. He did so because he loved his Lord. He loved the message of salvation. And he loved those who received it.